Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Epon Podcast. My name is Dan. I'm here today in the Richmond office without my friend John Raven. Um, I'm in the brand new Richmond office and we just opened up. It's a great new meetup space and that's exactly why I'm here. I'm here to, uh, last night I conducted a meetup for the Richmond Java Users Group. I was uh, lucky enough to be invited to talk on the consolidation of functional development using Java as a lens to examine that. Um, it was a good talk. Everyone seemed to really enjoy it. Uh, it. That's what this podcast episode is about. It's a recording of that talk. So if you liked it, please reach out. We'll get you the slide deck. Um, if you didn't like it, sorry. <laughs> uh, please give it a shot. And uh, it's definitely not the last R jug. Um, that was kind of a joke. It's definitely not the last one. If you enjoyed the talk, come to the next R jug. I believe that's going to be next month. Um, you can definitely find the space on meetup.com and uh, definitely come out. It's a great group of people talking about Java, talking about uh, the trends in modern software engineering. And um, I had a great time. I had a real, a real blast talking at, at the brand new Richmond space for, the, for Epon. Uh, I'm hoping to come back and do it again one day. So yeah, give this one a listen. Let us know what you thought and uh, we'll see you next time. Which thing? This thing? Yeah, I gotta push the... Cut it from Spotify when you're ready. Yeah. Sorry? That's, I don't know where the mic is. I was just going to use my presence, my stage presence. Speak into it just so it looks cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start walking around. <laughs> Check, check, one, two. All right, hey, everybody. Uh, sorry it's been a long time since we've had an R jug. I have kind of been slagging on getting things scheduled and buying speakers. It's been kind of difficult recently. But uh, Dan said he was going to make up for the lost months tonight and just wow you. He, yeah. he, said, he said you won't be disappointed. This is the last jug. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, glad to see everybody out uh, in Epon's new digs. I'm going to let Dan talk about Epon since he's also an Epon consultant. I do work. But uh, I keep calling him Dan. He actually goes by Fergie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't or respond Fergie to anything is. otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just kidding. Don't call him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Well, uh, go ahead, Dan. Yeah. So uh, welcome to the brand new space. This is uh, Epon Richmond. Uh, my name is Dan. I work at Epon New York. Um, we are a cloud consulting firm. We specialize in AWS here in America. We're also based in France. We're looking to hire mid to senior level Java developers, cloud engineers, and big data specialists. So anyway, if you're not happy in your current role, <laughs> speak out to Jamie Bach and he can give you more information. Uh, the talk tonight is kind of a hand-wavy, conjecture-laden conversation about the future directions of Java and how it applies to big data engineering, which is a subset of engineering of application development that's starting to take on a lot of market share. We're starting to see more people are writing data-driven applications as opposed to just REST APIs, things like that. So the inspiration for this talk comes from Epon starting out its big data offering. We had a whole week where we flew out some guys from France who oh, thank you who um, specialize in big data engineering. They do a lot of it in France, and then we were trying to replicate that same offering here in America, in the States. I'm part of the New York consortium of engineers that work on this process, and my background is in finance, my background is in systems, uh, sysops, and in API development. So coming from this really strict software engineering world and trying to understand big data, I realized quickly that there are two drastically different approaches to how you would organize, how you would develop applications in these two schools of thought. So I got to thinking, how do you combine these two? What could catalyze the two schools of thought, the two approaches to problem solving and application development, and bring them together so that 
data engineers and software engineers can work simultaneously on the same projects without having to learn drastically different skill sets. So I came up with this, again, hand-wavy, conjecture-laden thesis that states cloud-based data engineering tools will be the catalyst which marries data engineering and software engineering, creating a functional development-focused fusion of the two schools dubbed dataware. <coughs> that is under copyright, so if you have to say it, or if you put it in papers, I get paid. <laughs> so obviously there's thousands of languages out there, there's hundreds of frameworks, plenty of different ways to do things, but this is the R jug. So the focus of this thesis will be, we're gonna explore this thesis in the context of Java specifically, and how Java has changed from a object-oriented procedural language, to, you know, focusing on like API development and giant monolithic applications, and how it's become something that lends itself to much more than that. We could still write our monolithic applications, our business intelligence applications, our APIs, but we can also write data applications. So, how many of you here are software engineers? How many of you here are data engineers? Yes. Damn it. <laughs> if there's no data engineers, I can say what I want. And no one can hold me accountable. So, software engineers. You know, 90% of the time, what are you use what are you doing when you're writing application code in Java? Shout it out, anything, APIs, test cases, microservices. microservices, thank you. Great, cool, five stars participation for everybody. <laughs> Data engineer, how do you use Java? <laughs> That's, uh, this is all working out so well for me. <laughs> so, it really boils down, if we were to distill those two uh, responses, quote unquote, into uh, two words, we could say that software engineers tend to use Java in a more procedural, procedural, well-defined way. There's a really, there's a goal in mind, and we're gonna accomplish that goal in a resilient way that handles a bunch of different inputs, gracefully, scalable, available. Data engineers take a much more functional approach, and you, you typically don't use Java at all. They, uh, they use languages built on top of Java or languages with Java-esque Java syntax. Uh, they don't use Java at all. But the applications that are written by data engineers are usually functional. And um, functional in, in, a, in, in kind of a, a bad way, which we'll see later on. So taking what, that conversation, we can translate it into a metaphor. And the metaphor I'm using here is philosophy. On the left, we have the philosophy of software engineers. Software engineers align, in my opinion, to Buddhism. They're constantly trying to make their applications better. They're constantly employing better tactics, stronger design patterns, trying to write, get more out of their application code than they could in the last pull request. And that's where that quote comes from. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. That comes from, uh, that's a Buddhist proverb, which means no one can be the Buddha, you just have to attain that, you have to strive to attain that status. You will never get there, but as long as you're constantly improving, as long as you're constantly making your applications better, you, you will be more enlightened than someone who claims to be the Buddha themselves. And that's the same is true. How many times have you gone and talked to another developer and they think that their code is better than yours? And that's the first thing that comes out of every conversation. But it really comes down to software engineers are trying to make their application go better, oftentimes at the expense of the holistic use case. Now on the right side, we have the philosopher Machiavelli, who is famous for saying the ends justify the means. This is kind of what data engineers tend to do in their applications. They'll write applications that don't really adhere to design patterns. They don't really adhere to uh, handling bad data. Um, I mean, no one here does that, of course. but. Traditionally, data engineers will write applications that are a little more, uh, you see what I mean when I was saying what, by functional. It's one big script that handles everything perfectly for that perfect set of data. Now somewhere in the middle is uh, the state of nirvana. How do we combine these two schools of thought to live in this happy world in between where software engineers and data engineers 
can work on the same project simultaneously, each taking their own skills and putting them towards the project without any of the uh, pitfalls that we see. So let's define this a little more. We have software engineers and data engineers. Software engineers tend to be process-oriented, CI/CD pipelines, extensive QA testing for, you know, to the point where it's a little redundant and verbose. Uh, they have resilient, a resilient end product usually. If it's done right, you'll have a highly available, scalable piece of software that can withstand any kind of data input and has its own retry mechanisms. It's a consolidated tool set, really your favorite IDE. There's a smooth learning curve because most people will go through a basic programming course and understand at the end of that how to use Java. And it does take years to master because like the Buddha, you never really get there you constantly work harder to improve yourself. So it takes a long time to get masterful at programming in Java. Now on the other side, we have data engineers. These guys are results oriented. Doesn't matter what your script looks like, as long as at the end of it, the results I want will help drive my business. There's a fragile end product because it doesn't usually uh, work if data isn't perfect, or if the data set changes, or if the schema changes, or if new values are added, or if unexpected values are encountered. There's a wide range of tools, which we'll see more. Uh, it takes a steep learning curve to get good at being a data engineer. It takes a long time to look at a data set holistically and identify what's a fact, what's a dimension, what are your KPIs, what kind of uh, feature modifications do we have to do, what kind of ETL pipelines do we have to build out, where's our data coming from, how do we extend that, be generic for many different data sources. So it's a steep learning curve, but eventually it gets easy. Eventually, after doing it enough times, you can kind of identify these characteristics about any data set just by looking at it. So how do we get to the dataware state? Dataware states are require dataware engineers are requirements oriented. They have a modular end product, so it kind of meshes these two schools of thought together. They have a focus tool set. It doesn't necessarily have to be all the same, but as long as it combines the, the skills of software engineer and the data engineer in a focused way, there's a smooth learning curve and it's easier to master. So how do we do that and how does Java be that tool? So back to our metaphor about uh, philosophy, we're going to discuss Java as a, as a reincarnating entity. Just like in Hinduism, to achieve nirvana, you have to be reincarnated, each time getting better. So in this first reincarnation, we decided to use Java to write consolidated dataware applications by exporting to a jar file. Some of you may know these tools, some of you may not. Basically, H2O and DataRobot are two big tools used to uh, ingest data, do feature analysis on those data, identify KPIs, identify features that are uh, great predicting metrics and build models against that data. You can also use Python to build your model as well and at the end of the day you'd export your jar. Most of these tools will automate one process or another of the ETL pipeline. Some of it are uh, offer more fine-grained tuning features. Like H2O is very fine-grained whereas DataRobot is much more point-and-click. At the end of the day you have a jar file. My experience in this, I used to work in a financial uh, firm, and uh, we had done some POCs with DataRobot where we would take some raw data coming in from a message bus, and we would plug it into DataRobot, and then at the end of the day, it would suggest a model, and suggest like a, a KPI for that model, and we would try to make predictions against it. So because it was a financial firm with no real concept around uh, best practices, especially when it applied to data engineering, we would take our logstash binary that connected to our message bus, write all of the data coming off logstash as standard out, and then pipe a call to the exported jar. So all the data coming from logstash would be piped into the jar file. This is terrible. And I know the company I worked for is not the only one that did this, because this is everywhere. So how, the, the real problem here is how do you deploy a, a small jar file that no one really knows how it works mathematically because it's a generated model. So how do you deploy that? How do you maintain that in a production environment? How do you make changes to that? The same is true for H2O. Some people may know H2O better, but it's the same situation. In the best case scenario, 
you have a CI/CD pipeline for your Python script, and then every now and again, you'll just run an auto-generator that takes your Python script and builds a jar file off that Python script, and that goes out to your production box because um, it's a data center, not in the cloud, because no one in the cloud is doing this. <laughs> um, so let's take a look at what this looks like based on our end state. This is not requirements oriented. Why is it not requirements oriented? Because you can't really know for certain what that jar looks like. Maybe you want to depack it, maybe you want to open it up and look at the decompiled code, but are you going to do this every time you have to make a change? Every time you have to validate that your end product fits all the requirements of your model? Definitely not. I also did that for a while and that was very tedious. It's not a modular end product because it's just a jar file. You can't make changes to that jar file, you can't cut it up, you can't use the pieces that you want and ignore the pieces you don't want, it's just a jar file. So you have to understand how, how are you going to make this modular and use it in all of your use cases. You won't. Best case scenario is you have jar v1, jar v2, jar v3, jar v4, all in a file, all in some folder, in some directory. Maybe there's a readme file that tells you which one does what. Maybe not. Saw the tool set? Definitely not. Because there's a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different tools to generate jar files that uh, contain models that allow you to write data engineering applications. Smooth learning curve, yeah, okay. It's all point and click UIs, so it's not too bad. It's easy to master in the same token, point and click UI, so it's not too bad. All things considered, two out of five, not a great solution. So reincarnation number two comes around. This is the part where people may start to get offended. I'm offending you, I'm sorry. Uh, reincarnation number two talks about JVM-based languages. I'm talking Scala and Kotlin, um, specifically those. Those languages are built on top of the JVM. So instead of taking the JVM and making it, in, in Java specifically, and turning it into a language that is useful for data engineering, it was decided that they would build languages on top of Java. So now you have Scala and Kotlin, which run on top of Java, and really what benefits are added that make it useful, a useful tool for data engineering? First one, headless mode. You can start writing your code right into the console. You don't have to know how to set up an IDE as a data engineer to start writing high-level programming code. You just call your Scala binary, and now you're inside a Scala context, which has all of the same properties as a basic Java object, and you just start writing Scala code. And now you have, you're able to start exploring your data in real time, and then you can eventually export that as well to a jar, or make some kind of program built off this Scala or Kotlin code that you can productionize. So let's take a look at how this matches against our requirements. It is requirements oriented because we are in full control of every line of code that goes into our application. So that's good. We can definitely know beyond a shadow of a doubt what's going on in our model and what's going on in our data-driven application. And as long as we programmed it right, it's requirements oriented. Same is true for a modular end product. If you programmed it right, it's going to be modular. You can take pieces in, move pieces out. You can use it and reuse it. It's a modular end product. Not a consolidated tool set, though. Because we have Scala, but I don't know of any Scala IDEs. I think it's just CLI. Um, and on top of that, you can choose what shell you want. If you know, have like a specific shell you like, IPython versus some other shells, or things like that. Um, so it's not really a consolidated tool set, and it's a lot of overhead for people who may not care about those things to have to start writing data-driven web or data-driven software applications. Not a smooth learning curve. If you know Java already, or know what Java is, what Java looks like, you have to understand the translation that's made between Java and the JVM and what's running on top of it, Scala and Kotlin. So you have to understand that translation. But once you understand that translation, it's easy to master, just like any other programming language. So reincarnation number three, this is where it's awesome. This is the best part. This is where Oracle decided, I'm going to fix Java. We all know how that went. That was great. I think it went well. Uh, <laughs> first one that happened was Java 8. That's a long-term service release. First time an LTS release was ever 
uh, assigned to a Java release. That was never a thing before. Now we have a long-term service release for Java 8. Security updates for Java 8 just stopped being free as of January. Um, but that's the, I guess that's the extent. I think Java 8 came out in 2014. So it's about five years or so, or 2008, I'm not sure. Uh, this introduced a lot of things that were unique to programming languages like Scala and Kotlin. Lambda functions, for one, that's amazing. That now we can start, instead of defining anonymous inner classes, we have a Lambda function with the streams, couple that with the streams API, and you can start working on huge data sets uniformly without having to write different functions and different anonymous inner classes to process your data. You can write an ETL pipeline very quickly with a couple of lines of Java code now, just like you would have done in Scala or Kotlin. A couple of other awesome aspects of Java 8 really laid the groundwork for the other releases. Java 9, this is another one. Java 9 came out as not an LTS release, but it did implement something called JShell. Does anyone know what JShell is? You know what JShell is. Yeah, it's an interactive console. It's so great. It's such a cool tool. It's basically Java running in headless mode. And now you can type into a JShell console, and you have all of, as long as it's Java syntax, you have the same aspects of a, uh, of a standard Java file. You declare variables, write methods, all of that sits inside your JVM instance inside the JShell. When Java 9 came out, it was kind of slow. It wasn't so great. But then Java 10 came out and made some improvement. Oh, before I go to that, Java 9 also introduced module-based compilation. Module-based compilation, you know how you have packages in a standard Java environment, you will now have modules. So you can mix and match objects uh, or classes from different packages and deploy as a module, which is a, a cool feature. A little complicated, I don't know who would use that, um, but it's cool. <laughs> Java 10 introduced implicit types, another <laughs> game changer. Now we can use the var keyword. This is another very appealing thing for people who are exploring their data, who don't necessarily adhere to best practices like data engineers when it comes to building monolithic applications. So now you don't have to know your types necessarily, as long as it's implicitly defined in your code. Java 11 came along, another, the next long-term service release, or I probably would say the last. Uh, this put implicit types inside your Lambda functions. Now you have everything you need to build an, an ETL pipeline inside your Lambda function without impacting out what's going on outside your, your, your Lambda function, outside your ETL pipeline. And it also introduced single file compile. So if you're a data engineer writing in Java, inside your JShell, you can define a nice Lambda function that takes in data, performs some stream operations on it, and writes it out to some other location, all in one file, and compile it. And now you can send that off to your software engineer and say, this is the piece that I need for my ETL pipeline. So now data engineers and software engineers are working together on the same project using the same tool set without having to know too many different technologies. So mapping this against our requirements, it is requirements oriented, because you're writing the code yourself, and if you did a good job, it's gonna be requirements oriented. Same is true for modular and product. If you did a good job, if you know how to write a modular piece of code, it's gonna be modular. It's a consolidated tool set. There's a shell, there's an IDE. Smooth learning curve. If you've gone through any introductory Java course or any introductory programming course, you learned either Java or Python. Both are very similar. Um, when I was in undergraduate school, my teacher always told me that Java is the same as Python, except it's got semicolons. And I don't know if that's true, because I'm a Java guy, but for the sake of the R jug, it's true. Uh, it's also easy to master, because you don't have to know now, as a data engineer, how to set up your IDE, how to set up your JDK, what kind of best practices to adhere to. You could still write Java code and it's all inside your shell, or it's all inside the single file that you compiled, and now you ship that off to your software engineer, and the software engineer sees something that they know. They know exactly what they're looking at, because it's Java code. And it puts, gets put right into their development environment without an issue. So we did it. Congratulations. Except we didn't actually do it. So that's, we did most of it, right? This is the thesis that we started with. Cloud-based data engineering tools will be the catalyst. 
which marries data engineering and software engineering. Uh, I mean, we, we discussed the, the, the tools that, or the changes to Java that marry those two, but we didn't talk about the cloud bit. Is anyone here familiar with Amazon Coretto? You don't count. Anyone else? You don't count either. All right. No one knows what Coretto is. Coretto is the, oh yeah, this is the snap for those of you who've seen Avengers. In my opinion, this is the snap at the end of Avengers uh, that we'll, we'll start to feel throughout the industry very soon. Reincarnation 4. Uh, it's Amazon Coretto. It is Amazon's managed JDK. So Amazon released JDK, I think it was a reInvent last year, or something like that. Um, Oracle was like, Pfft. but it's really its own managed JDK that sits on top of or can be hot swapped with open JDK. Oracle's afraid. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know who said that, but Oracle's very afraid. Oh, you said, okay, Oracle's shaking in their boots. And this is why, like I said before, Java 8 patches are not free anymore. They weren't free since January. Coretto's patching is going to be until 2022, I think it is, 2023. Um, Oracle is offering Java 11 for production use with a license that you have to buy. And licenses vary in pricing from number of hosts to number of cores on a host. So I don't know how what their license, their their pricing plan is, but Coretto is free for Java 11 in prod. It's free. You don't have to pay for anything. It's a drop-in replacement for the OpenJDK, which means anywhere you're using OpenJDK, you can use Coretto. And it already powers many internal AWS services, so it's been tested. It's in use now. If you use AWS, on some level, you're using Coretto. We'll talk about that more. Um, when I was at uh, Royal Bank of Canada, the the Unix teams would constantly patch our Java service or our Java uh, distribution on our hosts and not tell anyone, ever. So when all of a sudden your Java 6 application, because that's what we had for a long time was Java 6, um, was upgraded to Java 8 and it doesn't compile anymore, then you have to say, well, why doesn't it compile? And you find out that Java has been updated and no one told you. Java patches were installed, were rolled out and no one told you. This is different now, because it's just Coretto, which is the same as OpenJDK. And there's, there's Coretto 8, there's Coretto 11, and all the patches are free. So if you work on OpenJDK, you work on Coretto. Now, we're, just because Amazon released Coretto for general use and your on-prem systems, where are they gonna release it that's not on-prem? probably within AWS. So if you look at the Lambda runtimes for Java 8, it's the OpenJDK runtime. Coretto is a drop-in replacement for OpenJDK. I bet you, within the next year, that's gonna be another option. Java 8 runtime, OpenJDK. Java 8 runtime, Coretto 8. Now, where else do we think we'll see this? Jesus, it's like you guys are asleep. Uh, we'll probably see this on EC2 if we don't haven't already seen it. Uh, I probably should have checked, but it's only a matter of time before AMIs are starting to are, are bundled with Coretto on board. The Amazon Linux AMI. Okay, so there you go. And EC2, that's Amazon Linux, is going to be built with Coretto already on board. That translates to EMR. That translates to MSK, that translates to uh, Redshift, Redshift Spectrum, BCS, Data Pipeline, any Amazon service that uses EC2 is gonna be using Coretto. So, let's look at the uh, requirements for this, or let's look at the um, credentials for this setup. It was the same as requirements oriented because we're still programming in Java. It's the same as a modular in product because if you did it right, it should still be modular. Same with the consolidated tool set because it's just a shell or just an IDE. Still a smooth learning curve because most people already have that background knowledge to be able to pick up writing Java code. It's easy to master because you use it in the capacity that you're trained to use it, either as a data engineer or as an application developer. But it's also built for the hybrid cloud. This is kind of a key point now. 
this is, this is the, the box to tick for anyone who's planning their CEO's cloud migration in 2022. And you're thinking, how am I gonna do that? My CEO doesn't care as long as I get into the hybrid cloud at that point. So this is, a, this is a definitely a tool to consider. And it will also make life easier, especially if you use something like Java 11 or Cremato 11, for your data engineers and your software engineers to work on the same tools on the same products. So let's do a quick recap. We started writing our data model code in R and exporting it to Python because R crashed. <laughs> so it can't handle data. Then we decided let's just skip that and write it as a jar. It's a black box. We could throw it on our production server. That is our data model server. And we'll use 10% of the resources for that jar. Then we decided to extend the JVM and make a small subset of languages that only data engineers need to know um, because application developers don't care about Scala or Kotlin because they're designed to work on lots of data all at once. Then Oracle comes along and decides, let's fix the JVM to reflect new development trends. We could start combining the functionality of Java 6 with what the, what the industry wants now. Then we enhanced it for the cloud. Amazon <coughs> dropped the bomb. They made the snap. Oracle's not scared at all. And uh, let's look back at our thesis. Cloud-based data engineering tools will be the catalyst, which marries data engineering and software engineering creating a functional development focused fusion of the two schools of thought dubbed dataware. So, what do you guys think? I'm scared to ask, because I think everyone's <laughs> asleep. Have we done this? Have we, have, we, have we made this environment? Hands up for yes. <laughs> Great, thank God. So everyone else is a no. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say, theoretically, the technology's there, but I don't think we, we did make it. The technology's there, the systems are there, the application tools are there, but we're not really there yet. So there's some things that stand in our way, and there's three things, I think. Management, industry, and business. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, management is, uh, management still looks at IT as a cost center. Management thinks that IT is expensive. Management's not willing to invest in IT, they're willing to invest in product and clients and something else. Management's not willing to uh, invest money in IT. But it makes sense, I can see why. As someone in charge of a large company, when my data center bill is in the millions, why would I want to invest in IT more? It sounds to me like someone's spending too much, but the cost of IT infrastructure is that much when you're on-prem, which is why you should move to the cloud. <laughs> Uh, industry looks at things like data lakes for data engineers as a, it's something we need eventually and we're behind the ball for not working on it now, but we can't do it now. And the reason for that is that the term data lake is like 10 years old. My nephews are older than the data lake. And that's even just in like, in, in um, uh, educational circles. The first paper on data lakes was about 10 years old. So if you, you know that that means there's at least five years, at least three to five years, before it even made its way into the industry. So the industry looks at the concept of a data lake and says, why? I don't, I'm, where, I'm doing fine. Why would I invest money hiring data engineers who have no experience architecting something that we don't really know is gonna work? It looks good on paper, but how many people have functioning data centers that, will, that have worked for the last 20, 30 years? People are still running DB2. So like, why would they go into a, into, into a data lake? The last one is business. It's because businesses will tend to silo their developers into specific practices. Again, this is true for when I was, at, uh, I was in, in my last uh, position. They were trying to build out a data lake by 2020. That was a 2020 goal. Last I heard from them was May, I'm sorry, March of 2019, and they just hired an architect. <laughs> they had hired interns for their 2018 summer to hydrate the lake. So it all sounds great, but no one really knows what, what's going on, what they're supposed to do to get a data lake working. And it doesn't help that everyone's siloed off, especially in finance where everyone works the front, middle, back based on their desks, which desks 
have which data is dependent on which desk makes the most money. And now you have all of this data that belongs to one desk that they could potentially make money for that they don't want available to another desk. But it's a lake. It should be available to almost anybody under the right circumstances. So, and, and a data-driven business doesn't say this data is off limits to everyone for no reason. There has to be a good reason for it, especially if it's a data-driven business. So in this transition to a data-driven world, how are we supposed to take the technology we have, which takes application developers and data engineers, the two parties that have the skills needed to take us into a data-driven world, and bring them together when these things are in the way? Um, those of you who've seen Goodwill Hunting, it's a quote by Goodwill Hunting. It's not your guy's fault. There's nothing you can do anymore. We have the tools, but the management industry and business are in the way. So this is where the homework comes in. This is for you guys. When you're starting a new project, or even in projects that you have, consider what it would take to change your mindset from a software engineer, or the one data engineer, to a data ware engineer. What does that mean for you? How do you take your existing products and turn them into requirements-oriented, modular products with a focus tool set that are easy to learn and easy to manage. And that's it. <laughs> Questions are $5 a piece. <laughs> I will field them now. Great. No questions? Come on, guys. If we use the term dataware. Yeah, that's also uh, copyrighted $5 per mention. $5 per mention? Per mention, right. yeah. No trick in that. <laughs> um, what's up? So I have a question. You're talking about JVM languages and then the evolution of Java. Um, I know Scala is still used a lot for. Like I don't know, Spark. I don't know. There's, there, it's used. Yeah. Uh, and there's other JVM languages, and I see Java adding features, but they're very conservative, and they're still like totally object oriented. So you're still writing classes. I mean, I guess you can write a class that's all static functions. Um, so I just, I wonder when you say functional, it seemed like you said two different things. One is like a functional or a pragmatic approach. The other is like functional programming. Like, yeah. That data flowing through a pipeline of functions. Right. And so my question to you is, when you talk about the evolution of Java, they seem to be, they're, they're, they're adding new features and they're, but it's sort of an add -on. They're adding on stuff that's functional in, in a way. But like you jump into that J shell, which I haven't used yet, you're still, you're still writing Java, right? You're writing, you, yeah. you have not left the OO world. No, you haven't left the OO world. Not just writing functions and composing them. You are though. Tell me I'm wrong. So this, oh man, this is the best. I've been waiting to use this. I thought the content would be engaging enough. <laughs> I've been, I've no joke. I bought this in like 2010. I waited nine years to use this. Totally worth it. It was right. So dub dub, for those of you who watch Rick and Morty. Dub dub is the method that takes a string and returns a string. All this method does is concatenate wubba lubba onto the beginning of the string that's passed in. I call dub dub in the shell, passing dub dub, and now I get wubba lubba dub dub. And you can reference this too. This little guy, this number two here, is great. Because now I can go system.out.println dollar sign two. Oh, it's almost a perfect demo. 
Oh. There we go. So that's stored in a local variable for this shell instance. And yeah, you can write as many methods as you want. You can even open up a, uh, a little guy here that shows you, you know how Scala has that context where you can, you can um, uh, I'm confusing Scala and Spark a little bit, but Scala has this uh, command line option where it shows you all of the different components you've defined in that instance. This is the same thing. And now I can type anything in this, and I can save it, I can accept it, and it'll just run it again. So, I mean, this is, this is great for data engineers. This is that headless mode that lets them explore their data in real time. They don't care about what their method's called or how many times they've defined it slightly differently because that's not their prerogative to care. They've spent hundreds of man hours pouring through gigabytes and gigabytes of data trying to figure out what's a feature, what's a fact, what's a dimension, which columns correlate to a KPI, what's a predictive factor, what's irrelevant, what am I going to design my, how am I going to design my data store to pull in just the fields that I need, just the records that I want, the rest of it's irrelevant. How am I going to hide my, my uh, PIA? You know, all of this stuff that's associated with a data engineer's job, yet they still, at the end of the day, have to write some code, so why not use tools that make it easier to integrate that code for the rest of the world using Java? Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it, wild. it still seems like there's a way to, ways to go. Um, I mentioned closure, so I'll just go ahead and make that this last one. <laughs> like the, the ability to, to really rapidly define kind of not very structured data or process data that you haven't defined the structure up front. And they have like a few abstractions that are, you know, like a form of a sequence, you know, a list, a vector, a map. Yeah. So there's not a lot of data structures. It's really simple. There's not a lot of hubbub about, um, you're not defining any classes. You kind of defer that structure. And so what I, some of that I don't see here. Like, I'm assuming when data comes in, you're, you don't necessarily have a great story, like, for your system. Like, you're still going to be creating classes that are parsing something. Someone is, yeah. It, like, what's your ability to like just type in the console and create data structures that are just simple data structures like maps and lists, and destructure them and the rest of it? Uh, I mean, I know you can create a hash map in the console, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, how close are you to that kind of like very fluent? Is that no showing up bar? Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to go to, but I didn't do enough prep for this demo to confidently do it. But you can do import statements. You would import your data type, right? Yep. And then you would say var data type equals, I don't know, hash map. Um, integer. Yeah, I haven't typed in years, so this is tough. Yeah. Where's IntelliJ? <laughs> IntelliJ. <laughs> IntelliJ would have told me that I needed a new keyword. But now we have fsys, this is the variable name, pointing to some empty record, but it was implicitly typed as var. For the, yeah, sorry, it's a little low. It was implicitly typed as var, <laughs> and I defined it concretely as a hash map of integers pointing to strings, but I used it here as a var. Yeah. I don't know if I can do like fsys.add or put, right? It's a put. Uh, one dub dub. Yeah, I guess I can't do that, but. <laughs> I mean, are there other commands that are more shell like in this J shell? Like, I can see a data processing pipeline and might make a bunch of little functions and then you might want to pipe them together. Right. It's a whole set of stuff. So, um, see, you wouldn't want to do something that's shell-like, because at the end of the day, this is still a Java program. So when you're, when you're maybe, a, so this is where it gets weird, right? A data engineer may approach it slightly differently from an application engineer, but best practice would say you start here at your, at your first step, defining what that first function is, go out and get that data, or make some processing on that data, store it in a variable. Then use the output of that 
and into another function as input for another function. Or you can use it strictly just the streams API. If you have a stream, you can use stream API calls, and it's all the builder pattern. It all just returns a stream. So you just add on to that, and you just, and so instead of, yeah, I see what you're saying, it's, it looks like a shell, smells like a shell, sounds like a shell, but it's not. You have that exploratory option of looking at your data in real time with a Java syntax. And this is really, this is powerful for people who don't necessarily have a giant Java application with a bunch of different components. Who, why would a data engineer care about uh, authorization components to an application? Why would they care about their database connection? Why would they care about any of their other, their logging framework? They just care about their data. And they have the expertise that lets them know how to use, what data they need to use when. And that, that skill, that expertise is empowered by something that lets them explore their data. That's what gave Kotlin and Scala power. That's what gave them such, uh, such an authority in this space. That's why you start seeing jobs come out for people with Scala and Kotlin experience. Because it lets them, it lets engineers explore their data without getting their fingers dirty. Because at the end of the day, just get rid of your, your shell and all that stuff is gone. It's done now. You don't have to worry, you didn't create any crap code that got committed to a CI CD pipeline. You just, maybe you, maybe what you did that day is useless. So you come back the next day I know, right? Heaven forbid. You come back the next day and you start exploring some more. And now at the end of that, you'll, you'll be able to have, you can just do slash edit and you have a list of all of the commands you ran. Copy that and send it over to your app dev. And now they have that component of their, their code that, that, they, that the app dev needs. But the app dev doesn't have time to figure that out. They're busy building the other components of the application. How does the bear actually work under the hood? It's like in the sense of, could you say bear law equals null? Does it enforce not that to then allow you to rewrite later? Like, so <coughs> var is a little weird with that. How it works exactly under the hoods, I couldn't say. I put a blog post at the end of this, uh, uh, the end of this um, presentation written by one of Epon's top engineers that goes over the var keyword and all the differences between the Java, uh, uh, Java releases, the var keyword is explored there. And really what it comes down to is that the var keyword's a little hacky. It's not a reserved word, so you can have var var. It's totally fine, um, which is great, by the way. You should definitely do that. Uh, you can have a var var. What you can't do is, uh, it's, it's pretty open-ended what you can do. You can put them inside Lambda functions. You can set them to be uh, the implicit type of some huge, I did, I mentioned that before, you can, uh, what I was doing in that specific example, a hash map of strings to integers. But what if it's a hash map of like some crazy long custom generic mapping to another crazy long custom generic and you have to not have a typo because you're in the shell. So you can have, you could just use the var keyword for that. The, way, the only place I know concretely where it doesn't work is if you make a call to a method and assign the output of that method the, uh, to, the, to the var type. So right, say, right. yeah, so say I do, I, I call dubdub and assign var to the dubdub output. That doesn't, it doesn't, it's, and this is where the Java object oriented paradigm is still strong. Because you should be able to go and look at that method and say it returns a string. Mm -hmm. So why would I set it to a var? So it's, it's variable in its perception but not variable in separation. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and you can definitely assign a string to the output of dubdub and assign a var to that string and then get rid of your variable. Um, that's up to you, that's your prerogative. It's, uh, the var, I mean, if I had to say like a soft rule is if you're, an, if you're an application developer, if you're a software engineer by trade, you shouldn't have to use var, you shouldn't use var. Maybe use var in your lambdas to keep track of stuff. But like, at the same time, why? When you probably are keeping track of primitives, like a counter or something like that. There's no reason as an application developer, as a software engineer, to use the var keyword. This is put for data engineers. This was put in place for people who are exploring data who don't need a sense of permanence to their application code. 
They just need something that works. And then they ship it off to the data engineer, uh, to the software engineer to integrate it into their application holistically. So you take advantage of the skills of both parties. And if you use Coretto, it's great for the cloud. <laughs> so, I, not yet. I'm about to be. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, any other questions? So a data lake is really, uh, imagine, um, are you familiar with S3? Yeah. So imagine, uh, imagine a hard drive with unlimited number, uh, an unlimited amount of space on it, and everyone puts all of their information, all of their files on this hard drive uh, in some folder that you, it's impossible to find so manually. Like unstructured data? Unstructured data, yeah. It's just like this giant data. It's, it's, okay. Yeah, it's like a giant hard drive. And uh, the concept of a data lake is how do you put data in there? How do I get it out? And who's allowed to get it out? And yeah, what are they going to use it for? Yeah, what are they going to use it for? Data warehouses usually sit on the edges of, of data lakes. It's like the docks, the slip, if you will, for boats. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what a data lake is. And it's a big task for data engineers to understand how do I get data in, in, in the best way so that the applications built on top of this can use it without, you know, gracefully and efficiently. Yeah. efficiently. yeah, it's a big task. And on top of that, they have to write application code as well. So it's a lot to ask for people who don't have this specialty. Why, why not use software engineers to work with them? I, I think that the new Java releases and um, a lot of the cloud tools on, on AWS enable people to do that. Any other questions? Great. Cool. Thank you for having me. And uh, come back to, well, there, this was the last R-Jug, so there won't be any more after this. But. <laughs>